Well, once upon a time, there were a couple of monks that were walking uh, in the countryside along a path during the rainy season. Uh, William Bridges tells their story. They were rounding a bend when they noticed a muddy stream blocked their path and blocked their way. And standing next to this stream was a lovely, beautiful woman with long flowing robes. So one of the monks said, here, let me carry you across the muddy stream. And so he picked her up and he carried her across the stream and he set her down on the other side and he and the other monk made their way silently to the abbey up on the hill. And later that evening, the other monk suddenly said, I think you made an error when you picked up that woman. You know we're not supposed to have anything to do with women and you held one close to you. You should not have done that. How strange, said the other monk. I carried her across the water, and you are carrying her still. And I wonder what you might be carrying still. We often use the term baggage, right? Those things in the past that we just keep carrying, we just keep holding on to. You know, maybe it was a a relationship or a broken dream or a deep hurt. You know, we love uh, to hold on to them. Living in the present seems a little bit like a pipe dream, but what if we were able to set down our burdens and move on? You know, what if, by the grace of God, we were able to grow more and more in the presence of God in our present moment? God's given us lots of models of people through His Scriptures that stand in relation to the world in a certain way, and they were, they were present in the moment. And so we want to explore some of those different personalities through the Scriptures and determine a way for us to have a holy posture in our world today. Over the next couple of months, we're going to be in a series called Here I Stand. And we want to observe people who made every moment count with God and, and maybe for us to learn a little bit how to live in His presence moment by moment. Today, we want to highlight in whom we stand and how we stand I want to look at the book of Ephesians, especially the last chapter. If you brought a Bible with you, you want to look there. For the better part of six chapters, Paul has been inviting these followers from the church of Ephesus to uh, learn in whom they stand. He's told them in chapter 1, for instance, about their strong position in union with Jesus. And in chapter 2, uh, he, he talks more about that, um, how Jesus is head over all things, how he's over all the principalities and powers, how uh, with, uh, we have the resurrection power of God at work in us. This was his message. He talks about the church as if we are an army with Jesus as the general and the cosmic powers cowering before us. And in his final chapter, Ephesians 6, Paul offers, I think, some battle directions on how, how we can stand as the people of God in the world today. So Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10, let me walk through this with you this morning. Paul writes, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now notice a couple of things throughout all these verses. First of all, uh, Paul addresses the whole church corporately as an army, not individual soldiers. We will stand firm when we stand together, church. And also notice throughout this section, especially here, his instruction is to, uh, the, the timing of his instruction is to be strong. Be strong right here, right now, in the moment. Not yesterday, not tomorrow. Be strong now. Find your strength in the Lord and his power. We stand firmly only in our Savior in the moment. Verse 11, 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, I don't know how that strikes you. Can you imagine taking your stand against the devil? I've seen way too many Hollywood movies about the, you know, the devil as a character to make me believe I could stand firm against such a force of evil. You've seen some of these images, like uh, this image from the movie The Legend, very red. Or uh, maybe you remember this image of the devil from uh, The Devil and Daniel Webster, very crafty and creepy, you know. Or, or maybe this one, The Devil's Advocate, Al Pacino. Or maybe, uh, maybe Ned Flanders on The Simpsons, I, I don't know. But whatever the devil may look like, Paul doesn't budge. He doesn't equivocate. There's no tremor in his voice. The result of standing in God and standing in his armor is standing firm against the devil himself in the moment. And as you read through the book of Ephesians, you'll discover the devil's schemes. All throughout, Paul uh, shows us that these powers seek to alienate us from God through disobeying, uh, disobeying God or through alienating ourselves from God, ignorance, corrupted thinking. Uh, the devil seeks to push us away and divide us from other people through, uh, he talks about in chapter 4, greed and lying and anger and other sins. It sounds so intimidating. How can someone like Paul say with so much conviction we can stand against the devil's schemes ourselves in this moment? And the answer is, because he knows in whom we stand. We stand in Jesus. John would say the same in 1 John 4. He says, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Let me ask you, church, to repeat this after me. Say this, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Our first standing instruction is to remember in whom we stand because we'll never stand firmly in the moment if we're weak where we stand. We stand in Jesus Christ. Remember that. Remember that. Uh, Keep reading in verse 12, Ephesians 6. Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, it's also imperative for us to keep our enemies clear. Notice he says, we are not standing in this moment against Republicans or Democrats. We are not standing against transgender people or anti-abortion proponents. Your enemy is not your alderman or the mayor. It's not J.B. or Joe or the slate of presidential hopefuls. Your enemy is not the manager at Schnucks that you have something against. It's not the police officer who cited you a ticket for 42 and a 35. It's not the UIS student who came from India who goes to a Hindu chapel on Chatham Road. It's not somebody, it's some power. And the Ephesians knew all about magical power. Magic was a part of their marketplace. They had a bunch of names for the powers. Paul doesn't list them by name in detail here. He he gives more general terms, the rulers, the authorities, the forces. But one term which may have actually had some specific magical meaning in their day, the powers of this dark world, he said. As one New Testament scholar, Max Turner, uh, calls them cosmocrats 
of this present darkness. Cosmocrats are our enemies, not Democrats or even bureaucrats. Cosmocrats. Now, when the uh, people of Ephesus came to know Jesus, do you remember what they did in the book of Acts? They burned their magical books. They knew who their real enemy was. Do we? Or do we so often do as the world around us does? Do we like to burn people? It can be a real temptation. Therefore, verse 13, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take, uh, to be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Now listen, what action is Paul inviting believers in Jesus to take? To run up the hill of our culture and to attack? No, not here. To just be knocked around and beat up? No, not that either. The action, he says, both uh, twice in this verse alone is for us to stand. To stand. Because you see, for Paul, a Christian is already a, someone who stands at the top of the hill with Jesus. We're already at the crown of the hill, so there's no need to charge off in a half-cocked attack of our culture. It's our enemy who has to exhaust himself coming at us. And so our job, he says over and over again in this section, verse 11, our job is to take your stand. Verse 13, to stand your ground. Verse 14, to stand firm. And we do that today in this moment right here, right now. There will be a final day of evil sometime before Jesus returns to set everything right. But in Paul's way of thinking, the days are already evil. He said in chapter 5, be very careful how you live not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Live in the moment present with God because the days are evil. Sky Jathani in his book Futureville tells of someone who stand, uh, stood firm in his days. It was um, May 28th of 1992 when the, the principal cellist of the Sarajevo Opera dressed in his formal black tuxedo, and he sat in a burned-out chair in a bomb crater and began to play his cello. The place where he was sitting was a bakery in his neighborhood where 22 people waiting in line for bread the previous day had died at a bombing. During the siege of Sarajevo from 1992 to 1995, more than 10,000 people were killed. The citizens lived in constant fear of, of shelling, of bombs coming in, of snipers shooting at them. They still had to find food and water, and so they were always out. But this cellist lived near the bakery where a long line of people the day before were waiting for bread, and a bomb went off, and 22 of them died. And so for 22 days, one for each of his victims... He decided to stand firm against the ugliness of war with his only weapon, the beauty of music. And so, known as the cellist of Sarajevo, Smilovich uh, not only performed outside the bakery, but he continued to stand firm at funerals, at gravesides, at the rubble of buildings. He played in sniper-infested roads. I never stopped playing music through the siege, he said. My weapon was my cello. And through all of it, completely vulnerable, he was never shot, he was never hurt. It was almost like his music was standing firm against the evil of his day. A reporter once asked him if he was crazy for playing a cello in a war zone. And he said, 
Why do you not ask if they are crazy for shelling my city? (laughs) See, the fight is already on. The battle rages around you. And so Paul offers the second standing instruction for us this morning is to know whom we stand against, know what we stand against, because you'll never firmly live in the moment if we're fighting the wrong battles. We stand against evil. Know that. Well, verse 14, some verses that may be familiar to you. Paul writes, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God for Most of Paul's readers in Ephesus, they may have thought of a Roman soldier in all of his battle gear and regalia, but Paul may have also had in mind God's armor, spoken of from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 59, a God who put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Or Paul may have had in mind the Messiah's armor from Isaiah chapter 11 where it says, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. In other words, God puts his very own armor on you. In this moment, right now, you stand firm against all that hell can unleash because God has put his very own armor on you. You don't have to stand on your own two feet. That's the American dream, not the Christian gospel. You stand in God's shadow, and He covers you in grace. You stand, Paul says, with truth and righteousness. Now think about that for a minute. Our basic battle gear as followers of Jesus is our integrity, truth, and righteousness. Do you suppose if we did a poll of the people in Springfield, Illinois, do you think they'd say that is what our basic stance as a church is? A church of integrity. What would people say about us? They might say lots of things. Oh, Southside, that's that yellow brick building on MacArthur for the last 80 years, you know. They might say, oh, they do, they do a lot for the community. Man, I hope. What would they say? That's the church with the handsome preacher. (laughs) You you didn't have to laugh quite that hard. (laughs) No. How about, oh, that's a people of integrity. If that's not who we are, we will not stand firm today or any day. Our enemy's just too strong. So put on integrity this week, truth, right living. Put away weapons that you're, you're tempted to use, manipulation, deception, all those. Put them away and find a God who's bigger than you imagine. We have to stand in proper battle footwear. Paul says every soldier knows, especially in a holding battle, where you're trying to hold off the enemy, you've got to have a shoe with good grip. And in their era, they would actually take nails and hammer them through the bottom of the shoe right into the ground. You'd be nailed to the ground to stop the enemy from tacking and pushing you back. In our day, what kind of footwear do we need? Nikes? Yeezys? Louboutins? Paul says it's a deep, 
understanding of the gospel of peace that will give us a firm grip in the world. And we better take up a shield. Paul mentions the large door-sized shield of wood and leather Roman soldiers would use in, in battles. They could be locked together to form a wall. They could be placed over their heads to form a roof against the flaming arrows, the arrows of fire coming in among them. And, and we don't have access to those kinds of shields, but we don't have literal arrows coming at us anyway. What we have are the temptations to be afraid, to be angry, to be outraged, to be bitter, to be divided. Faith, he says, is what we need against such things. Faith, to depend on God through thick and thin, no matter what. Is that what you have held out in front of you as you make your way in the world? That kind of faith, depending on God no matter what. You'll need a proper helmet. You have to be sure of your connection with Jesus. Are you connected with Jesus? Paul would later, uh, or would earlier say in Ephesians 2, that God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We already hold solid ground. We already sit victoriously with Jesus. Now we stand our ground. The trouble is, I think, for so many of us, we live so much of our lives on autopilot. Have you ever woken up enough to know that? You ever done this? You ever gotten up? got in your car maybe, drove to work or the store, got out, got in the parking lot and realized you had no idea what just happened the last 10 minutes. Have you ever eaten your lunch, just crammed it down and then later was like, did I eat? Maybe you come to church on Sunday morning, same service, you sit in the same seat, talk to the same people, you go have the same lunch, take the same nap. It's so easy to be on autopilot. Author uh, Ernest Svensson writes this. He says, We can end up always being one step ahead of ourselves, never present in the here and now. And then he makes this analogy. He said, It's like eating the menu instead of the meal. The description may sound delicious. There may be pictures. The whole thing may be beautifully presented. But in the end, it's just a piece of cardboard covered with ink and no nutritional value whatsoever. Now, we need a people who eat the meal in the moment, not just eat the menu on autopilot. And Paul says, you are with Jesus right now in the heavenly realms. I do not understand what that means, but stand in that knowledge. And he says, don't assume that our armor is only reactive. We also have an offensive weapon. He talks about the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I mean, how, how do we defend? How do we attack against the powers that are attacking us as believers in Jesus? And the answer is, with truth. With truth, when we're being deceived, when we're being tempted. With truth, when the church has to fight false teachings. With truth, when the powers of our age are introducing philosophies and teachings and sexual advice and uh, identity statements that are attacking and leaving people without dignity or, or any kinds of evil doing that that, that's happening. We, we strike our enemy with the proclamation of Christian truth and the one who is truth, the spirit of the living God. Not beating people up with the word of God but fighting the powers behind all evil. Now, we, we attack the deception. We don't attack the deceived. We attack the prevailing thought of the day, not the person caught in it. We attack conventional wisdom that counters God's word. We don't attack the cherished person made in God's image. And how in the world do you keep all that straight? How do you do that? Paul says this, verse 18, and pray 
pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests, with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. We stand firm in this moment when we stand in Jesus, and we stand in Jesus when we connect with Him in prayer. Paul says we can be a people who stand present in the moment with Jesus. Here's how he summarizes it. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So our final standing instruction this morning is this, mind how we stand, because we will never stand firmly in the moment, right here, right now, if we're naked on the battlefield. We stand in the way of Jesus. Mind that you're living that way. It was October 31st, 1517. There was a little-known priest who was also a university professor. He was making his way past the gathering crowd towards uh, the large double doors of All Saints Church in a place called Wittenberg, Saxony, modern-day Germany. And in one hand, he held a lengthy handwritten list of 95 points of contention that he had with the church that he loved so much. And in his other hand, he probably had a hammer. Thomas Smith describes his movement. He says, at the door, a larger than normal crowd of people were gathered because it was the eve of All Saints Day, All Hallows' Eve, we would call it Halloween. And the people from the city, the people from the countryside had all come in to town for the big Catholic feast that was going to happen on the next day, November 1st. Posting announcements and other notices on church doors of the time were common, especially for university professors. And so Martin Luther quickly walked up to the church entrance and began nailing his list to the door. If you got a list of contentions with our church, don't nail them to the door, okay? They're glass doors here. Just come bring them to me, you know, it's okay. But he nailed them to the door. And I think he believed um, that his 95 theses was, it was not going to begin a revolution, but rather a debate stirred up in the church where they began talking and reforming some of the church's practices and some of the church's teachings that he felt like were going against Scripture. He feared people were getting lulled, Christians were getting lulled into thinking that you can earn your salvation through works or even worse, through paying the church for indulgences. He believed you were fa- you, the Scriptures teach you were saved by faith alone. And so word began to spread of his 95 thesis, aided by Gutenberg's printing press, the new technology of the day. His ideas went viral, and it started to threaten the powers that be in the church. They got very nervous. What are they going to do? Luther's very life began to be in danger. For the next few years, they kept telling him, you've got to repent, you've got to recant, you've got to take back your teachings, and he refused. The church was running out of options about what to do with this troublemaker, so... January 1521, Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X. And then later in April, Luther found himself answering allegations of heresy in front of a group of of leaders. There was a strong possibility that the 37-year-old professor would be burned at the stake. He was given another opportunity to save himself. All he had to do was recant and everything would be forgiven. But in that moment, he stood firm and he said, My conscience is captive to the Word of God. Thus I cannot and I will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. 
Let me invite you, if you would, to stand up with me right now, would you? Here you stand, in this moment, right here, right now. You can't do anything about yesterday, and tomorrow you can't even call up yet. You stand right here, right now. It's just you and God and this moment. You can do no other. Here you stand. Now, how you stand, that's going to be up to you. Pray with me, will you? Father, give us the courage to be a people who stand firm, a people convinced of your truth and righteousness who can be confident, Lord Jesus, in what you have accomplished on the cross and in your resurrection. Help us to be a people who stand against evil while loving those who do it. A people of grace and truth and righteousness. As we seek to stand in you this week, Father, give us the energy and the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.